Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. And we're actually uh, not jumping on to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do that next Sunday or so. And perhaps homework if you want to encourage you to read on in your Bibles to Matthews 5, 6 and 7. We're not going to be looking in depth next Sunday. We're going to pick up three aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, um, but that's next week. Um, But you could maybe read on in your own time before then. That would be helpful. But we're going to pick up from where we left off last Sunday in Matthew chapter 4. And we saw last Sunday the beginning of the the appearance of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, both in terms of the ministry of John the Baptist, and the appearance of Jesus, and in his baptism, and then being led out into the wilderness and his temptation. And we reflected on the fact that the gospel writers, all the gospel writers, and of course there's four gospels, and um, four records of the life of Jesus, all drawn from the accounts of the apostles, people like Peter, and John, and James, and others, but in the same way as if there was some incident outside, say at um, the cross there at Belsau Road and, and the main street, and there was some incident, traffic incident, and there would be different witnesses, and they would, well, hopefully all agree that there had been an incident, that a car had gone into a post, or unfortunately perhaps knocked somebody down, or whatever, but they would each be standing in a different place and, and bring their own insight as to what happened. So each account would be would be different, but the same, you get the point. They would see the incident, but would come to it from a different perspective. So the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, come to it from a different perspective. John's writing far later, towards the end of the first century, he's writing, one might almost say, from a slightly more philosophical um, thinking. He's removed by a distance and also by a lengthy experience in ministry um, and in exile. And so he's writing back with old age, remembering things that Jesus has said more personally, more intimately, but also reflecting on these things. Whereas Matthew and Luke are drawing far nearer to the time, drawing inspiration really from, from Mark's gospel in a sense. Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel written, really almost a, kind of like a tract, which was produced very much the account of Peter. Um, John Mark was one of the young disciples, the next generation of disciples, and he also recorded what Peter had seen and said, and again had picked up what had been said with other guys and other women as well. And, and Matthew and Luke draw from that, but even Matthew and Luke have their own perspective. Luke's writing to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, wanting them to know that there's a reason for the hope that's within them and explaining it from that context. And Matthew's writing largely to Jewish converts or to those who are considering, is Jesus a, a, a false prophet? or yet another prophet, or a rabbi, or a teacher, or a leader of some new movement, or is he the Messiah of God? Is he the one promised by the Old Testament? And therefore Matthew refers often to the Old Testament, both John the Baptist's ministry, Matthew quotes from Isaiah, and quotes the fact that there's one who's going to come, who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, and then, as we're going to see, he also quotes now from the Old Testament to explain the context of Jesus' ministry. So that's just a wee bit of the background. It's important to do that. I was challenged and provoked to think that what we don't, we, I can presume as a minister, we kind of know the background, and that's not the case, especially nowadays. And so it's important we explain and understand the background for all of us, however long we've been a Christian or part of the church. So let's pick up Matthew chapter 4 and reading from verse 12. 
When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, Jesus, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with the father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm sure many of us, perhaps not all of us, but many of us have been following, especially over this past week or so, the, the ebb and flow of the, the latest saga in the story of the royal family. And if you heard last night, or if you heard from the news, or read and got it on your phone or whatever, and this morning you'll notice that um, the, the recent news is that Harry and Meghan um, basically are going to be moving away. We kind of view that anyway. Um, they still will have their HRH title, but they won't use them. Um, they won't effectively be part of the royal family, although the Queen, in her statement this year, should emphasise they were still very much part of the human family. I think it's important to distinguish the role between a family, human family, that most of us, all of us, have been part of or are part of, and she spoke very warmly of that, positive of that. But the fact is that they are, in one sense, a business, an institution. There is a work to be done. And, and Harry and Meghan will not be part of that, at least not often and not in any large way. Certainly not in any way that's going to involve the public uh, or the taxpayer paying for um, money. And, and, and perhaps many of us, anyway, are old enough to remember, of course, their mother and her sudden and, in many ways, very tragic death. Men also remember seeing both Harry and William as young, well, boys, really, Harry certainly was a young boy, having to stand there and see their mother's coffin. But not just that, all the story and all the events that went round both the disaster and decay of their parents' marriage, and of course all the events surrounding what happened to Diana, Princess of Wales. And in more recent years, William, but particularly Harry, has spoken about his struggles, his mental health issues, the struggle of trying to come to terms with that, and seemingly now we're hearing expressing to friends who wished he could have another kind of life. He was in a position, he had a title, um, of course at one point he was very much near the, the, the line of succession, now um, William's done his bit, 
uh, and produced three children. And so Harry's kind of very much kind of, you know, on the sidelines of it. And in many ways, this gives them the opportunity, in a sense, to leave the title and the position and the trappings and the, and the, the status, in a sense, and just to go on with it. One will see. And we do want to pray for them and indeed for the royal family. <coughs> and it's a challenging time. There always is a challenge. There always is a challenge. And sometimes, in fact, right, if it were a bit ago, people often talk about ministers' children, for instance, or, or school teachers' children. And, and, and people, if you've got any kind of public role within a community, a doctor's job, anybody who has a kind of public role within the community, and certainly sometimes there is a sense, well, you know, your kids should be better behaved, or, you know, should, should, should be, you know, different from everybody else, and, and all this kind of thing. And that can put much pressure on your family. I certainly know of many ministers who found that in their own family. And their children have to be said nowhere near the church. And how Elizabeth now do thank God that's not the case in our own family. By his grace and by his love and by your support and encouragement. But it can be hard because you have a position, but you're actually not the person for that. Well, the title of Messiah, of Christ, of God's anointed one was a position, is a position. And there was various understandings as to what that position meant. By the time Jesus was born, the time we're reading, the understanding largely amongst most Jewish people was, well, first of all, it, God wasn't going to do anything. He'd fall asleep or he'd go in a holiday or something else and there wasn't going to be much happening. Because as I said, in many occasions there's a big gap not just literally in terms of pages between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there's a big gap in terms of hundreds of years between the last prophet of Israel and the story of the New Testament. God had given up on us. And even those who believed that he still would act, when they thought of the Messiah, when they thought of the person who would come, they thought of a prince of Israel. They thought of David's greater son, Old Testament language. And so in their understanding, what they thought of was of somebody who would come and who would ride in a horse, who would bring together an army, who would get rid of the Romans, and who would set himself up in the royal palace in Jerusalem and put things back to the way they used to be. That was the large understanding of who the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a military figure, a political figure. He would be acclaimed by the people in public, and he would set up an earthly rule in Jerusalem. We can see that, how that's worked out the Gospel right to show us. When it comes to Palm Sunday, the crowds gather together and they welcome Jesus and many in those crowds, and that explains why, from the Sunday to the end of the week they changed their minds. Many of those crowds thought that they were welcoming Jesus to be an earthly king and to be a rule in David's throne in Jerusalem. And they would draw that from their understanding of the Old Testament. And Matthew particularly writing to a Jewish audience is key for them and for us to realize that yes, there is a title, there is a position, but this is what it really means. And thank God, the Son of God didn't have any crisis of identity or didn't know who he was, unlike perhaps others, including some members of our royal family. He was clear. Time and again in the Gospels, we read that he set his face, set his face to Jerusalem. He set his face to go into the wilderness. And after John, John the Baptist, is put in prison, 
he sets his face to do what he as God incarnate is called to do. As the one who is the word that became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. And that is to do his father's will. And to fulfill the words of the prophet. And Matthew, for instance, here is clear to emphasise that. It was almost like Christmas again, wasn't it? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light is gone. <coughs> Quoting from Isaiah 9, verses that are usually read at Christmas. How sad it is, of course, that we hear these verses at Christmas. And many people hear these verses. Look at the people that came into the church over the Christmas period. Heard those verses, but it's, it's left. You know, the, the title, the position, the fulfillment is this baby. And it's stuck there and basically doesn't change to next Christmas when it re-emerges, you know? And for many people, that's their understanding of Jesus. He's a kind of baby, a perpetual baby who never grows up and who never really enters into the role that he was born for. But that's not the account and the story of the Gospels. And so we read that being true to Scripture... Jesus withdrew to Galilee, left Nazareth, where he'd been brought up with his family and had worked alongside his father, Joseph the carpenter, and all the rest of it. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake and near Ezebel and Naphtali, and he began to preach. He went to an area which really wasn't, I mean, if you were going to really make a name for yourself, you certainly didn't go to the back rooms. It'd be like somebody retreating to the, you know, to the, the wild west of the north of Scotland or somewhere else. He, he certainly wouldn't be going to, you know, he didn't go to London. He didn't become a mover and shaker within contemporary society. Yes, he had met, Luke tells us, he had met as a young man in that threshold from becoming a man, from being a boy. In Luke chapter 4, he met with the teachers and the rulers and the synagogue and he spoke with them and he listened to them and he answered them and challenged them back. But now he goes to the backwards in many ways. Reminding us that the God, the Father of Jesus, is the one who's not taken it by the gold. I understand, because why he said that, bless him. But, and by the palatial ornaments of establishment, or of official religion, or of things that impress in a worldly context. God is the God who's the eye for the outcast, the stranger, those who are on the fringes. Those who might feel and believe that they're of no interest to God. He's the God who has an eye on all, especially on the poor, the stranger, the unknown. And Jesus begins his ministry. What does he say? He begins his ministry not by calling for a revolt. There had been others who had done that. Indeed, the context of the gospel, the context of Jesus' ministry, was that there had been rebellions against Rome in that era. And, and, and it wasn't the first time that somebody got up and raised a rebellion and then was crushed by the Roman power and might. But he doesn't do that. He actually follows on from the ministry of John the Baptist and he calls men and women to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does he mean by repent? Some of us uh, old enough to remember, I don't think maybe it happens now, but remember seeing people wandering up down the streets of Glasgow on a Saturday afternoon because I was out spending my pocket money on my student grant. 
and you would see them wandering down Soccer Street, these boars, remember? Yes, yes. And uh, nowadays they'd be digitalised and all the rest of it, I suppose. But in those days it was just a kind of board, wasn't it? A Simon board type thing. And I had words like, repent for the end is nigh. As if all the shoppers on a Saturday afternoon in the 70s and 80s were suddenly going to throw away their shopping and say, yes, let's go for it. They just crowd past them and ignore them. And so often when we think of repentance, what we think of is, well, we must stop doing this, or we must stop doing that, or we must turn away from the things we really like. And there may be, and as we see next Sunday, there is a challenge to how we live and what we do, the whole issue of sin. But in this context, the repent means literally, what it means literally is to turn round, to turn round. It's the other Sunday when we're talking about the wise men. And we made the point then that their recognition, non-Jewish people from Syria, from Iran really probably, or sent down at the bottom of the Euphrates River, that turning, that journey to Jesus showed that they were turning away from their cultural mindset of many gods and the gods inhabiting people and all the rest of it. They were literally turning away from that, leaving that behind, and they were journeying to the star, but not just to the star, but to what the star pointed to the king who was born, and they worshipped him. They gave him worship as God. And repentance ultimately is about that. It's about recognizing God for who He is. It's about bowing down, I mean, literally, but certainly within our hearts, and acknowledging Him as our Creator and the one who alone is worthy of the devotion and service and utilization of our gifts and our lives. That He is to be the King of the castle, no longer I. That's why in the centre of the word sin, the letter I is so significant. For the state of sin is not just doing wrong things. Indeed, you could be a very good person. You could be a very righteous person. John the Baptist already challenged those who were very good and very righteous. Who said, we have Abraham as our father. The Pharisees and Sadducees were insulted by the warning, by the call of John the Baptist to repent before the coming wrath. But they didn't recognize, even at the very end of the journey of Jesus on Calvary's cross, that actually what they had to do was to say, not me, but you. And repentance is essentially that. That's why sometimes we have people come about the church, not just this church, I mean the church. And often, as you know, when I'm talking about the church, it's not just a church, I mean, not just his faith friends, you know, but we're just totally part of the, the church. But that's why so often people come about the church, and for a season, be quite keen and quite involved and do all the rest of it, and even say the right kind of words and all the rest of it. But ultimately, if in their hearts they haven't acknowledged Jesus as Lord, that's why that stands there. You know, 2,000, years. But it's vital still standing because that's the initial and vital crucial statement, not just of the early church, but the church down the ages. Jesus is boss. We're going to worship him, put him first. His agenda, his program, not me, not my plans, not my agenda. That's what repentance is all about. Acknowledging and realizing that. Because God's rule, the kingdom of heaven, has come. Now, of course, there are some who would debate about that. What does that actually mean? 
God's kingdom rule will be seen. That great party we spoke of with the children at the very end of time, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day will come and everyone will see that great day of celebration for his people. That day of awesome awfulness for those who are not his people. But what it does mean is in here and now God's rule and reign is present in the hearts of those <coughs> and who say Jesus your boss and what was the result what was the result of that preaching what was the result of that state so often we can feel that, you know, we never say things, maybe again in our work or something else, and we simply think to ourselves, well, there's no point saying anything, nobody listens. Maybe you can feel that sometimes in our car. There's no point saying anything, and then nobody listens. And, and, and we can think in our contemporary culture that it's a really end point of church saying very much because nobody listens. I have to say, sometimes the leaders of the church in a contemporary culture, I think, must believe that because they either say nothing, or when they do say it, it's just waffle. And don't say anything of any direction or clarity or significance in the midst of all that's been going on in this country over the last year or two. So often our church leaders are part and wringing their hands and telling us all to be nice. I mean, anybody can say that. Anybody should say that. It's not a wrong thing to say. But apart from saying that, they said nothing. But Jesus' ministry was different. The gospel writers again tell us not only did Jesus set his face to do what he was called to do, but when he spoke, he spoke with authority. And folk did listen. Ears were opened. Eyes were opened. Lice were stirred. And amazing things took place. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And Jesus said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, or send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. John, in his gospel, when you go home, perhaps you can read the beginning of his gospel, he spent some time unpackaging that. And it's quite likely, of course, that Jesus living in Galilee, ministering in Capernaum, preaching there in the temple. Already the story of Jesus had gone about. Already there was an awareness of what was happening. And already they had heard and had some sort of encounter probably with Jesus, Peter and Andrew. That was already going on. God was already preparing the ground. And as I say, John in his gospel, looking back, can recount these encounters and these conversations that took place. But you see, we can hear. We can see. I mean, I think of the hundreds of thousands of people that have been through the doors of this church over its 155 years or whatever it is we're on to now. And certainly for parts of that, they have heard the gospel. Unfortunately, not all the time, but for parts of that, they heard the gospel under different ministries. But not all of them, oh, heard. They were part of the Sunday school. No doubt you can recount when all these wee wooden chairs were laid out in the hall and there was big boards through there. As a wee boy brought up in a church that had, and wasn't halfway actually, and they used to recount, my dad you did, used to recount these double decker buses that they used to have, you know, and all these kids that went in the Sunday school outing and all the rest of it. And they all become followers of Jesus. 
there comes a point, and how good it was that Jacob reminded me that that was the point, bless him, RSVP. There comes a point when the deal needs to be closed. There comes a point when the engagement has to become personal. There comes a point when there has to be an active response if, in the case of a to say or somewhere else is get up out of your seat and come forward. It may not be the case here or in other churches, but it's in our hearts and boundaries proclaim Jesus as Lord. And that scene then in what flows <coughs> from that. Here are fishermen. This is their life. It's hard for us to understand, especially for many of us. I, as minister in the East End of Glasgow, I got a taste of that, perhaps more than that where I had, where people so identified with their working life and with their culture and with their background. It was who they were. It was in their bones. It was their understanding. Even in the 1990s and the 2000s, of the, their whole worldview was influenced by that in a way that perhaps in other parts of the world, whether it be Falkirk or Larbert or Burnside or whatever else, it wasn't so common their understanding of who they were, and if that was challenged, in terms of their working life, in terms of their culture, in terms of their family, then all hell breaks loose. Still does. Well, these were fishermen. And that's who they were. It wasn't just something they did alongside everything else. That was who they were. That, that, their family had been with that. It was their dad and their granddad and their great-granddad. A bit like you know, the Hamiltons of the line of them at this church, you know, went down through the generations. <clears throat> and they leave that. And they follow him. And they follow him. And again, just I mean there's so much how Jesus but understanding their background understanding their culture, understanding their language, understanding what's so important to them, then uses language that they can at least connect with. He says, and you can become fishers of men and women. That's the God that we have. The one who went into, you know, Jesus, into that messy pool of water problem in the Jordan. The one who enters into the reality of the world is the God who then meets with us and communicates with us and engages with us in ways that we can understand and connect with. While obviously three, four years before they would fully understand what it meant to be fishers of men, I have no doubt Peter on that first day of Pentecost when he stood up and proclaimed the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, he would hear the words of Jesus and I will make you a fish of men and women. 5,000 men and their families repented and believed on that day. And they left behind. And they just leave it behind, but it began to have a knock-on effect. James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, and they were in a boat preparing their nets. And Jesus also called them. He's into team effort, team ministry, a gathering together, a connecting. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now that really is a big thing to, in a sense, to <laughs> turn your back on your family. Again, that's a, you know, a no-no. That's a no-no anyway, but especially again in some cultural context. You just do not do that. <clears throat> and they did. And they followed him. How radical, 
how demanding, how life-changing, how direction-orientating the call and claim of Jesus is. You know, my friends, we so often have lost sight of that in our nation. That's why Scotland is no longer, if it really ever was the land of the book, it certainly is no longer because so many of us as Christians and so many churches, it's just something we do. It's part of who we are, part of who we are. It's like our clothes, it's a, you know? But that radical, life-changing disciple calling, demand of Jesus. Let's not get too tired. But we too need to hear the call of God's King. And lastly, we then see, and again, this is important, there's the preaching, the teaching of Jesus, and here very simply, okay, kingdom of heaven is hand. There's the impact of man people's lives, the tangible following him, the tangible letting him be the boss, and directing who we are and what we do, and everything that flows from that. The disciples don't always get it right. We're not always going to get it right. Thank God, God is a God who's full of mercy and grace, and does not deal with us as a sin deserve. But they did get there. <coughs> and the impact, the outward consequence of that is, well, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them large crowds. And notice where the crowds come from. Galilee, that bandit kind of weaver country. Decapolis, that suspect place. The ten cities which is in the border country. Yes, Jerusalem. Yes, Judea. But also the region across the Jordan. That definitely is no man's land. That's still Samaritan. No, it is. It's Here's a God who breaks down divisions. Here's a God who's not restricted by cultural or ethnic peculiarities. Here's a God who's got an eye on the outcast, the stranger, the alienated, those beyond what might be regarded as respectable religious folk. That's what so often has been wrong with the church. We think it should be people like us, but actually the kingdom is made up of people often very different from us. Contrary <laughs> to us. Even Jesus Christ are brought into that one body. That one people, that one church, that one fellowship. And lives are impacted. The sign of the kingdom, of God's kingdom rule breaking in, of God's presence being known, of God's reality being experienced is the sick are healed, the demon possessed are delivered, the paralyzed can walk. The blind can see lives are transformed. And in our society today, where there's often, and rightly so, a suspicion of talk and a desire for tangible signs and demonstrations of, well, if this God is really, you know, what you see is, and he's done what you say is, well, let's see the evidence. The evidence has to be seen, yes, amongst his people, amongst the Peter and John and all the rest of it, but it also has to be seen in his impact on others. Transformational impact on lives. And that's the 
whole side of the life of the church, which traditions like ours are often pretty hopeless getting a handle on, but which, if we're going to be true to the calling of God here in the 2020s, we will have to get a handle on. Life's transformed, the community's impacted, tangible demonstrations. Are we up for that? Or do we prefer the comfort and the security and the stability and the same oldness of what we already have known? My friends, the era for that has long gone. The kingdom must come. Let's be that kingdom. The music group are now going to teach us a new song. It's not even one added, so they <coughs> And But it's one which I saw and in the book, and I thought the words were very pertinent to what we're doing about Jesus and his ministry. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus, only Jesus. And they'll sing. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.